Amen. Amen. Please remain standing and hear the words of our God from the Gospel of John. I'll be reading chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. These are the words of God. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let us pray. God and Father, be with us here by your Holy Spirit as your word is opened and preached. Minister to hearts, open ears, and turn us to your ways. Instruct us in how we are to see Christ in our lives and the hope of eternal things with you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> So as we continue in the Gospel of John, we come to the second chapter, and we come now to the first of the signs. John will use this expression also. The first of the signs that John carefully selects for his Gospel. And, and these signs, most of which um, are, are not found in any of the other synoptics. The synoptic Gospels have a number of different miracles that Jesus did that is, are not recorded in John. And likewise, John has a number of signs that he has chosen... And he chose ones that the other apostles had not and had not put in their, uh, in their Gospels. John says that Jesus did many more signs than he recorded, but that these ones he chose, as it says at the end of this Gospel, it says that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. So we know the purpose of the signs. The purpose of the signs was in order that we might believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. So he was not, um, now you'll note, and you'll notice this as, as John goes through this, John's not trying to choose the most spectacular miracles that Jesus did. He's not trying to show Jesus off as like some kind of a special Gandalf who's able to, um, you know, call down fire from heaven and, and, and do all kinds of amazing, miraculous things. He's not trying to act, act like he's some, some kind of a magician. Look, I'll pull a rabbit out of my hat. Aren't you impressed? He's not, he's not showing signs that we might be impressed with magical powers that Jesus has. That's not his, that's not his point at all. In fact, uh, many, like this one that, that, that I just read, were done in relative obscurity. Even Jesus himself does many of his miracles not in public view. Let's gather a big crowd and I'm going I'm to do a bunch of tricks here and that's going to really draw the crowds now. That, that's not what's going on. So, so what are the signs for? How are we to understand what the signs are, are to teach us? Well, he chose them because the, the, specific, the specific signs that he chooses are the, are the signs that, um, that, that he chooses them because of the efficacy of the sign in its ability to point us, like a good sign, 
to the thing it was signifying. You're on the road and you're trying to get somewhere and, and you're not sure how much farther it is or which way you're to go and the sign tells you now where to go. But you don't stop at the sign and hang out at the sign. You let the sign drive you, to point you in the direction into the thing that the sign is pointing you to. And a good sign sends you in, in the right direction. That's what a sign is. So therefore, we have to look beyond the wine miracle to what the sign of this event is pointing to. That's the point of the signs. So, uh, and and as I I mentioned to you, I was going to finally give you a little uh, outline of the book of of the Gospel of John, just to keep this in mind, and this would be a good point for us to do this. Um, John, after his prologue, that's the first 18 verses in chapter 1, and then the introduction and announcement of Jesus' public ministry that we just took a look at last uh, Lord's Day in verses 19 through 25, we come to the second chapter. And chapters 2 through 11 contain seven miracles or seven signs, culminating, the final sign there, is in raising Lazarus from the dead. There actually will be another sign that will take place, of course, an eighth sign, the resurrection of Jesus himself. John is carefully put these together. Sevens are all throughout the Gospel of John, all throughout the book of Revelation as well. Um, and, and so uh, we, we see these seven signs. This section then is often called, chapters 2 through 11, the book of signs. In them, Jesus reveals his glory. Remember in, in ver- chapter 1, verse 14, um, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So to behold his glory was to see his grace and his truth and that he was, in fact, from the Father. And then in our passage here in chapter uh, 2, verse 11, this beginning of signs Jesus did to manifest his glory and his disciples believed. So that's chapters 2 through 11, the book of signs. And then after that comes what is often called the book of glory, where um, Jesus receives his glory. The, The book of Signs is a place where he reveals his glory, and then the book of glory is where he reveals his glory. If you have a Bible, turn with me to chapter 12. You see where this begins, this section. He begins talking in this way. Chapter 12, verse 23. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. So he's talking about now it's time for him to be glorified. First he's revealing his glory, and then he's receiving his glory in the second half. Now, in addition, we can see we're in the middle of a subsection also in chapter 2, 3, and 4. And in this section, um, and one of the ways you can kind of bookend it is both these last two, or these two of these signs, the, the last and first events in this section, both take place in Cana of Galilee. And then the other events take place in other places, like back in Jerusalem. So uh, in these three chapters, 2, 3, and 4, they they present the replacement of the old for the new. You're going to see this over and over again. The old is being set aside and the new is being brought forth. So we have here the old purifications are being transformed or replaced by the new wine of the kingdom of God. And then we'll hear of the old temple that is going to be um, replaced by the risen temple, the risen Lord himself at the end of chapter 2. Then there'll be an exposition of the new birth for a new creation out of the old creation, the, the, the command to be born again in chapter 3. And then there'll be a contrast between the water of Jacob's well, the old covenant patriarch, and the living water from Christ in chapter 4 with the woman at the well. 
And then the worship of, uh, along that conversation with her, also is going to be the replacement of the worship uh, both at Jerusalem and in Gerizim, both in, the, in, the, in, the, in Judea and also in Israel. Um, in Jerusalem and Gerizim, the, that worship is being replaced with worship that is in spirit and truth at the end of chapter 4. This section conveys what Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Behold, old things have passed away and all things have become new. So that's what, that's what you should be watching for. And also, if, if, you, if you look at it that way, as you're reading through the gospel and you're watching these signs, what you're trying to see is why, so why is John choosing these particular signs? And I think it makes sense to see that what he's revealing, the, the glory that he's revealing is that Jesus has come to fulfill everything that the prophets had spoken of and that he has come to bring a new wine of the kingdom of God into new wineskins or new ways of, of coming before him. There's a replacement going on and, and this is being revealed in how Jesus uh, pursues and, and goes through his ministry. Okay? So here's a quick overview of the, of the passage that I just read now, verses 1 through 11. On, on the third day, did you notice that in, in verse 1? On the third day, well, the third day of what? Third day of the week? Third, again, John chooses words, and, you, and you, it, you ought to consider oftentimes what he's alluding to also. What else happens on the third day? So we, we, have, a, we have a third day event taking place. Something new is going to be brought forth. Actually, there's something else going on as well. On the third day, if you go back in, in chapter 1 if, and, and walk through the days, you'll notice that uh, an event happens, and then, say, for instance, in verse 29, it says, and the next day John saw Jesus, and then verse 35, again, the next day Jesus. You count those up, you end up with four days, and then add three more days, and we end up in Cana of Galilee for a wedding on the seventh day. We have seven days, or the first week of Jesus' ministry that we've been introduced to. And on the seventh day, we arrive, and we, and we are now in Cana of Galilee at a wedding, a Sabbath celebration of sorts. Jesus attends this wedding in Cana with his mother and his disciples as well. In verses 1 through 3, we're told that Jesus and his mother are both there, and that the disciples of Jesus have been invited as well. Um, it's a big celebration. This is a large wedding that's going on, and it's well orchestrated. We have a master of the feast, and we have a bridegroom who's responsible for this uh, celebration. And if it's large and, and there are lots of funds, then most likely it could be up to a seven-day uh, celebration. It would be at the home of the groom, and the groom would be the one picking up the tab. I've already, I've already married two of my daughters, and I thought to myself, hmm... This would have been an interesting way to do it. <laughs> Seven days at, uh, at my son-in-law's house, and he's picking up the tab. I'm, I'm liking this idea. Some of you who have daughters ought to just take note of those verses. Jesus, so during the celebration, some days into the celebration most likely, Jesus' mother informs him that they have no wine. And, and that's interesting. Why is, why is Jesus' mother particularly concerned? Uh, what, what this might be uh, pointing to is that uh, this wedding may have been taking place with a family member of Jesus, a family member of, of Mary, and she has some sense of responsibility for what's going on. But we don't know for sure. Jesus then gives an odd and cryptic answer, it seems to us, distancing himself and his ministry from any authority of his mother. Verse 4. But then in faith, his mother turns and instructs the servants to do whatever Jesus says in verse 5. Six water pots, totaling 120 to 180 gallons, used for ceremonial washings, are filled to the brim with water. 
And Jesus tells them to draw some out in verse 8. When the master of the feast had tasted it, he's shocked. And he calls the bridegroom and proclaims to the bridegroom the amazing quality of the wine that the bridegroom has provided. He has no idea that Jesus has, has done this miracle, even though the servants knew. So the master of feasts gives praise to the bridegroom for coming forth with the even better wine. Usually, people wait until everybody has well drunk, and then they, they, they give the less quality wine. Can't taste it as well. Doesn't matter, right? But instead, he's, he's, he's providing this wonderful wine in verses 8 through 10. This is the first sign that we are, we are told. Um, at least it's the first one recorded by John. Remember, John's not telling us everything. He says, if, if I had recorded all the things that Jesus did, there, the, the, there would not be enough books in the world to contain them all, he says. Uh, but he chooses these ones, and at least this is the first one, to manifest Jesus' glory, we are told, in verse 11. And we are told that his disciples believed in him, having this glory manifested in verse 11. Okay, so what are we seeing happen here? We're seeing this transformation taking place. We're seeing a glorious wedding, a glorious uh, uh, provision by the Lord Jesus Christ and a bridegroom. Something to learn here, something to see. There's, there are things that this is pointing to. Um, so for, first of all, we're out of wine. What, let's look a little closer at what's going on between Jesus and his mother because these questions come up all the time. When they ran out of wine, verse 3, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Well, it's pretty obvious that this wedding must have been of someone closely related to Jesus and his mother. She comes to him with a sense of responsibility over the fact that the wine had run out. There is a present problem. And she turns to the one who usually solves those problems for her. Um, you see throughout the adult ministry of Jesus, whenever um, Mary shows up, that there's no mention of Joseph. It appears that Joseph has probably uh, passed away. He's probably died. And, and Jesus is taking care of his mother. And so it makes complete sense that, that if, if she has, especially if she has any sense of responsibility, that she would go to her oldest son and she would say to her oldest son, who has been taking care of her and, and the family, and she would say to him, uh, look, Jesus, Jesus there's, we're out of wine. We're out of wine. Well, and she's confident that he can and will take care of it, even after Jesus gives what appears as a cryptic answer. Now, when he says to her, woman, it's not as, dis, uh, it's not as uh, dismissive a term as it sounds in our translations. It's, it's very unlikely that what he said to her was something like, woman, it's not, it's not like that at all. Um, and I, the reason we, can, we know that for sure is, um, turn with me to, to chapter 19. When Jesus is on the cross, and he's turning his mother over to the care of John, of this, uh, of this John, John of the Gospel, um, obviously with great love and affection for both of them, while he's hanging on the cross, in chapter 19, verse uh, 25, he says, now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Notice here, I'll make another just side note. Um, John never, never um, calls Jesus' mother by name in his gospel. He always calls it the mother of Jesus. It's always the mother of Jesus. Um, and, and you can try to figure that out with me why. But so it says, now there stood by the cross, Jesus, his mother, in verse 26 then. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. So he's not saying, woman. No, it's more like ma'am. 
Um, but it's not mother. It's, it's a different term. It's a different term, but it may have been a, 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 a word of respect, like ma'am or something like that. And so he says, ma'am, behold your, your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. And so that was, that, the use of the term is not just a, a dismissive kind of term at all. However, back in, back in chapter 2 now again, his phrase, what does your concern have to do with me, is a statement of distancing. In fact, in the Greek, that phrase is oftentimes, you'll hear it a couple other times with the demons speaking to Jesus. What, what do you have to do with me, Jesus? That, that, that's the kind of this dismissive term that has been, what does your concern have to do with me? And, and Jesus is probably saying more than even, even uh, Mary is, is pointing towards at the moment. He, but what he's, what he's making clear is that he must obey his father's will over and above his mother's wishes. And so he is making clear his line of submission. She must come to him now like every other person. As the promised Messiah, there is no inside track for family. In fact, there's another uh, portion of scripture, Matthew chapter 12, where, where Jesus' mother and, uh, and, his, uh, and his brothers come to him. He's in the middle of, of uh, doing a healing, and, and, and they come to him, and they want to see him, and the crowd is so large that someone comes and tells Jesus, your, your mother and brothers are, out, are outside, and they want, to, they want to see you. And Jesus almost dismisses them as he says, who are my mother and brothers? And then he turns to all of his followers and says, you are my mother and brothers. You are my family. In other words, if you're going to be a part of this family now, well, this family that I am connected to, it will be through faith. It will be through the work of the Spirit. It will not be a flesh and blood experience. There's no inside track, in other words, for Mary. She will have to believe on Jesus for her salvation just as everyone else. So Mary approaches Jesus as his mother, and she's admonished in verse 4. She then responds as a believer, and, is, and her faith is honored in verse 5. She turns to the servants and do whatever he says to do. She has confidence that he is going to take care of the issue. So there's this cryptic saying that, that is given that has a lot more meaning to it that, than even probably Mary completely understood at the moment. And she turns with confidence to the servants and says, go ahead and do whatever he says. He'll, he will take care of this. Mary, and so, um, uh, and, and in that verse, verse uh, uh, 4 again, Jesus has this other statement where he says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. He's not going to be receiving glory, but he's going to be revealing glory. So his hour of receiving his glory had not yet come. Come. It's possible that Mary had an understanding of something uh, remarkable that Jesus was going to receive, and maybe she began, began to think that maybe this was going to be that time. But he says, no, my hour has not yet come. This theme of, of the hour not coming is developed also through the gospel. So since we are kind of going through the, the gospel in a number of different ways, I want you to see these as well. So turn with me to chapter 7, verse 6. And you'll see this happen over and over again. Chapter 7, verse 6, where Jesus says, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. Um, also in the, uh, uh, in, in the same chapter in verse 30, Jesus says, therefore, it said of him, Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And then also in uh, chapter 8, verse 20, it says, these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. 
But then there's a change in, in the scriptures. If you look at chapter 12, verse 23, we already looked at. 12:23. but Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the son of man should be glorified. So this begins to take place on the final week of his ministry, the passion, uh, the passion week of Jesus' ministry. And then chapter 13, verse 1. Says, there it is. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, and also in chapter 14, um, verse, I'm sorry, 17, verse 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. So now it's time to receive the glory. The hour had come in, that fi in those final days. So Jesus will provide for this physical need, but it's done rather quietly. It, it's done so quietly in the presence of his disciples, they know what takes place, but the master of the feast had no idea that Jesus had done this miracle. And again, praises the bridegroom rather than even noting that Jesus had anything to do with it. So from out of wine, we go from, we, we see this, the, this relationship between Jesus and his mother. Another, another thing to notice is the, the, uh, the change from the, uh, uh, what takes place with the water and where the water is. Jesus doesn't head out to the grocery store or nearby vineyard. We ran out of salt for the corn. We sent someone out to the, yesterday at Heidelfest, and so we had to send someone out. Actually, someone was coming. We called them, hey, we're out of corn. They didn't just manifest it miraculously. They had to go to the store and get it for us. Well, Jesus doesn't head out to the grocery store or a nearby vineyard to get some more wine or to get some more grapes and try to do something with it. He points to stone jars because this is a sign. Okay? The, the details about the stone jars are given to us because it's a sign. It's pointing to something. Well, what are purification ceremonial jars pointing to? What are they reminding us of? What are they telling us that's going on? Levitical authorities had established an extra-biblical command to wash hands before you came in to eat. Now, you see, there was a biblical command for priests to go through um, a ceremonial washing before he offered a sacrifice. So the priests, Levites, before they offered their sacrifices, would go through a ceremonial washing. The Pharisees had added extra-biblical laws and had all of a sudden put out a mandate that everybody had to wash their hands before they ate. And Jesus would have none of it. He rejected the mandate of the authorities. And you, see, and you see this in Luke chapter 11, verses 37 and 38. Not only so, but all ritual washings were also fulfilled with the wine of his glory. The, the ritual washings are transformed into something else. There's no longer a need for cleansing because in the new kingdom, we've been cleansed fully and completely in the Lord Jesus Christ. This new wine would not be kept in the old wineskins of animal sacrifices and ceremonial washings. They would be going away. But instead, the new wine would be in the font of baptism and the Lord's Supper. New ways of distributing the means of grace were going to be given with the new wine to the new church. We are to see the replacement of the old institutions and rituals with the new life of the kingdom in Jesus. The master of the feast testifies that this is the better wine. This is the better wine. Jesus provides the better wine. So the sign points to spiritual and eternal life that is quantitatively and qualitatively superior. 
fulfilling and setting aside all the previous ceremonial signs. So there's one other piece in, in, of this sign to see. And notice when he tells them to fill up the, the, these water pots, these stone uh, jars, he says, um, uh, it says in verse 6, now there were set there six water pots of stones, and Jesus says, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim, overflowing all the way to the top. Nothing else is needed but the new wine to be full and complete and provide for all of the people in the party. I've pointed to this, I'm going to take a stop here for just a second and point out a couple other side notes that I think are interesting. I've used this passage several times in talking about other things, and I think it's worth noting as well. I don't think these are particularly the signs that, that John is pointing to, but I think you can draw this out from the passage as well. First of all, as J.C. Ryle puts it, if our Lord Jesus Christ actually worked a miracle in order to supply wine at a marriage feast, it seems to me impossible to prove that drinking wine is sinful. They had well drunk, we are told. And that word, when it says they had well drunk, they're, they're, the, the word that is being used is, is a word that is used elsewhere to talk about drunkenness. It, it talks about having men affected by the wine. Um, and so we're not talking about a substance that cannot inebriate a person. Wine makes the heart glad, but it is to be received as a gift from the Lord and not a carnal substance to abuse, enslave, and ruin your life with. This is a gift from God. And this is true of all the gifts of God that gives, God has given to us. It's, it's it, the gift of marriage and of marriage intimacy. Um, uh, the, the gifts, the gifts of, of food and, um, and of homes and of relationships. All of these things are gifts from God. And all of them can be used to the glory of his name. And all of them can be misused, perverted, twisted, um, taken, used to, to take advantage of others with. These are all gifts that God gives to us, and then we can either receive them with gladness and use them to the glory of his name, or they are things that we can twist and ruin ourselves or others with as well. Uh, second side note, Jesus is always making wine out of water. Think about that. God's always making wine out of water. Rain comes down out of the sky, it goes down into the earth, comes up into a vine, and goes into these little, these little pockets of, of juice containers that he makes. And then we pick those, those juice containers and we squish out the juice and, and then we put it into jars that we allow it to, to ferment over time and voila, water into wine. God is always making um, wine out of water. That's what he does. He just did it in a different way this time. He just did it in a different way. He just sped up the process without all of the extras. And then third, I want you to notice this also. If this was good wine then it would, have, it, it would have been a well-aged wine, or at least had the appearance of age, something that must have happened in the six days of creation by this great creator back then. One of the arguments against a six-day creation and a young earth is the fact that that would mean that God was tricking us. He made light with light rays, and, and so it looks like we've seen light rays that have been, uh, been coming towards us for millions and millions of years, but but you're telling me that God tricked us. No, I'm telling you that God provided for us. Otherwise, we wouldn't see the stars yet. And we needed the stars because they were teaching us all kinds of things. And so God gave the appearance of age to the stars. He gave appearance of age to the trees, to the mountains, to all that he created in the beginning of creation. And we see here Jesus do that. When, and when someone says, well, God would never do that, I would say, well, I can show you one time when Jesus did it very obviously for all of us. 
where he gave the appearance of age uh, from, from what had just been water a few moments ago and now is a well-aged wine. Side notes. You can take those and do with them as you will. But back to the passage and what's going on here. We, are now, we now have wine jars full to, the, full to the brim with wine and a bridegroom who has been taken care of. A bridegroom who had fallen short, but another one has stepped in his place to be the perfect bridegroom. Well, we'll later see that John the Baptist will use this picture of Jesus being the bridegroom and that he must increase, the last Old Testament prophet will decrease, and that it will all be to John's joy. Just turn one pa- uh, chapter over to chapter, chapter 3, verses 29 and 30. This is John the Baptist. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friends of the bridegroom who stand and hear and stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the, of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. Once again, we have the old covenant prophet who's finished his work, and he is now going to decrease, and the new prophet, the bridegroom. We have the friend of the bridegroom and the bridegroom, and the bridegroom has now arrived. The friend of the bridegroom's job is over, and the bridegroom, the new covenant leader, walks in to to bring everything forth. And the old covenant prophet is pleased to do so. That was his purpose. That's what he wants. He wants to to bring forth this glorious wedding celebration. At this wedding in Cana, the bridegroom fell short in his duties. He was out of wine for his guests, something that um, some commentators suggest that could have even even uh, brought some kind of a lawsuit, if not at least a bad reputation, upon the groom. Don't run out of wine if you're having a party for a wedding. That's what they said back then, I guess. And in the first miracle, Jesus fulfills what the bridegroom could not fulfill. Interestingly, we see Jesus quietly play the role of the perfect bridegroom behind the scenes, making the other bridegroom look good, cleansing, revealing, glorifying the other bridegroom. This manifested the glory of Christ. And his disciples, beginning to see this glory, glory revealed, believed in him. What was this glory? What was this? What what could we think of in terms of what this glory is? Well, the glory of Christ is a wedding feast. What what is the glory of Christ? The glory of Christ is a wedding feast. Mm -hmm. Of course, this also points to the glorious promised consummation of Christ's work. Revelation chapter 21, listen. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Notice this language again of abiding, of being with, of being in. We are the bride of Christ corporately. We are the bride of Christ, and we are being prepared to be brought before this bridegroom. We will be perfect. We will be perfected. And just as that wedding feast um, in Cana of Galilee, Galilee was perfected by the work of Jesus, so we will be perfect and perfected because of the work of Jesus, the great bridegroom who has made us perfect for himself. Jesus is the perfect and perfecting bridegroom who provides for his bride the great assembly of all who trust in him. The glory of Christ is a wedding feast. The glory of Christ also is eternal purification, the purification jars. The water was an outward ceremonial cleansing. In contrast, the wine goes in and makes the heart glad. 
For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins, the writer of Hebrews says, but instead we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The whole Old Testament ceremonies were something that were pointing to. They were signs. They were pointing to what would be fulfilled in Jesus. He has sanctified us. He has made you holy. You're holy. You're holy if you're in the Lord Jesus Christ. You do not need any more ceremonial washings. You don't need, there's nothing else that has, has to be offered, nor could be offered, that could improve upon the once for all perfect sacrifice that is yours in Jesus Christ. It's yours. It's yours. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 7. The, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Now, that word cleanse in, um, in 1 John 1, 7 is the same root word for the purification jars at the wedding. They were cleansing jars, but we've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, by the wine of the kingdom of heaven. He is the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. God's glory is revealed. God's glory is revealed in his name, and in his name we see all of his gracious glory. Remember when, when, when um, Moses wants to see the glory of God, and, and, uh, and, and, and the Lord says to Moses, you can't stand, no one can stand in front of my face and, and live. He says, but I'm gonna put you behind a rock and then I will step by you. And as he does, as he does, he declares to him what his name is. This is the name of God. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. By no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What is God's glory like? What is the, what is the glory of Christ like? Well, the glory of Christ is not that he, uh, he, he's, he's not playing around with sin. He's not just letting your sin go. He's not, he's not just not, he's not pretending that it's not there. No, he's fully and completely dealing with it as the God who takes away our sin through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, we, we would be put in a dire situation if, if God was just saying, well, I'm kind of looking the other way for now. No, he sent his son to take care of our sin for us. Jesus provides. And that provision of taking care of mercy, giving mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin is Jesus providing. And that's the glory of Christ. Our God is a forgiving God. Our God loves to be merciful. I, I want to harp on that over and over and over again because because you don't often want to give mercy. You don't often want to be forgiving. And you are the same person who oftentimes says, but I want to be like Jesus. Oh, but I don't want to be forgiving. I don't want to be merciful. I want justice. I want retribution. I want payback. But what does Jesus do? What does God the Father do through his son? Merciful to a thousand generations. Gracious to thousands upon thousands for all of the sins committed through the one act, the one sacrificial act of the Lord Jesus. All of your sins are taken care of in the one act of the Lord Jesus Christ because God is so merciful, so good, so kind, so full of loving kindness. The glory of Christ is eternal purification forever. And the eternal and the glory of Christ is also full to the brim Sabbath joy. Full to the brim, 
Sabbath rest, and Sabbath joy. The celebration of a union, overflowing purification, the best wine, rest, and celebration on the seventh day. That's what God gave on the seventh day. And in Jesus Christ, our Sabbath rest comes to a great fulfillment. And we enjoy the things of this earth in Sabbath feasting and resting to the glory of his name. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. Because that's what Jesus does. That's part of being in union and communion with him. What are you invited to see? What is the sign? What is the sign? Isaiah 25. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. Or Psalm 16. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Actually, let me read the last couple of verses from chapter 16, 9, 10, and 11. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Spiritual and eternal pleasures. Life forevermore. The best wedding feast and party. The best marriage union that lasts forever. The best food and drink, rest and joy forever. The best, full forgiveness, no shame, cleansed and, uh, cleansed and set right before the holy God, your Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ forever. That's the glory of Christ. That's why water was turned into wine. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.